Previously on American Genocide, Native American activist Crystal Echohawk and former journalist Lachey Wesley went to Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota to investigate growing tensions around a former boarding school's plans to search for possible mass graves on their campus. There needs to be justice. There needs to be justice finally served to our people. Interviews with the staff indicated changing attitudes and a new embrace of Native culture. It was a dramatic change after the decades of abuse and oppression. This led Lachey to the head of the school's Truth and Healing Commission, Macaw Black Elk, the man who commissioned the search for graves. It's a time for the Catholic Church also to face some very difficult questions about its role in colonization. However, conversations with the abuse survivors reveal deep divisions between the community members who support the school and a vocal protest group who want it torn to the ground. Anyway, my wife passed away a year and a half ago, so we uh, we just let her spirit move. So now I'm trying to get on with my life. So uh, since I'm not in mourning no more, I'm starting to spook off hot jam. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is Lachey. Before we get to the man speaking, let me set up where we are and explain the variety of sounds we are hearing in the background. We're on Alex White Plume's family's land. It's a park he created for the community. In the distance is a basketball court and some kids are playing while we're all gathered there. Where we're standing, you can see several miles away, the storm clouds brewing above us. In the field, there's a couple of horses that wander down towards us. They're just wandering around, ignoring us, eating grass. We really are in the middle of nowhere as we're all meeting together. <laughs> There's giant speakers in the background and it's just blasting native music. We sit down with some other young people as well as a couple of elders. Besides Crystal and I, there are just a couple of other non-Lakota people here. We have no idea what to expect. But this is some serious planning around the impending ground-penetrating radar event. And we can't do it for us, we have to do it for those tender... The man you hear is Alex Whiteplume. We're on his land for a gathering of the International Indigenous Youth Council. You'll remember them from the last episode. Uh, we're straightforward with it, like, not fucking around, you know, we're here to get shit done. They're young, fired up, and making a lot of people nervous. One of them is Alex's grandson. So let me tell you about our host, Alex Whiteplume. My name is Alex Whiteplume. I'm from the Wachiniska Tiwahe and the Oyukbe band of the Lakota Oglala Nation. Alex is deeply connected to his culture. He is a badass and probably the coolest elder I've ever met. The Oyukbe were the uh, original Lakota people. The white buffalo cap woman came and brought us our spiritual ways. And so from that, we became spiritual to be in balance with everything that's living. Smallest blade of grass to the biggest tree. So we, uh, that's where I'm from. He's a Vietnam veteran. I was in the Army Infantry, so uh, they taught me how to kill. I'm a cold-blooded killer. And before he was elected tribal president, which is a big deal, he was a rabble-rousing activist. I think we ought to go beyond this and tell him that we want to reject the Pope's half-ass apology. But today, he's playing the role of advisor, an elder statesman. So I'm here for the youth, these young guys, I back them up and I'll holler on in the background or give them gas money or 
whatever needs to be done, maybe a little advice. So uh, that's what I'm all about is I'm here to push these young guys. The, the news media is trying to push these young guys aside and they're trying to interview us older people. And uh, I think us older people, we had our day and I think it's their turn. And I know they're gonna do good. They're, they have a good belief. But the scary part for me is they don't know yet when a spirit contacts you. That's when you get a stroke if you don't watch yourself. This is American Genocide. We know these facilities on our territory are capable of having children under them. And why are we just sitting around? What are we waiting for? Who's gonna go up in there and tell them, bring our children home, we want our children back. So we decided to do that ourselves. I first heard about the Youth Council from my friend Andreas Hippel. Andreas Hippel uh, is my friend and he was also the former executive director of the Better Way Foundation, which has been a longtime funder of the Red Cloud Indian School, their Lakota language initiative and helped them actually, I think, with the startup funding for their Truth and Healing initiative. When we first got on the phone and I was just really looking for tips related to boarding school investigation, the Catholic Church, he mentioned not only what was going on at Red Cloud Indian School, Macaw and the Truth and Healing Commission. I know Macaw was director of Truth and Healing. He was involved and curriculum development. Then he said, you've really got to talk to this youth council because they had just done a protest that previous fall. And he was really talking about the tensions that were starting to brew. After 133 years of them being on our territory, this is the first day we're ever standing against these churches and these residential boarding schools on our territory. Before we met with them, I looked online to see what they were up to and saw that they seemed to be pretty organized and pretty plugged into what was happening with the community. I think our first point in contact with Eleanor and Philip was actually over a Zoom. Yeah, they were just in like a bedroom and they had a land back sign, looks like some music posters on the wall, but they were just, there was a kid, a child running around and it just seemed like normal kids. Oh yeah, I mean, when we met with them on Zoom, I think for one second they might have been a little bit guarded and then they just sort of like really got into it. And They were edgy and they were really, really clear and also really giving us a sense too that they did not feel like the school was being transparent, that they felt like the leadership of the school was almost trying to block them from really engaging in sort of the community advisory group efforts, all the things. So, I mean, we got a real sense right away that there was definitely some tension and they were serious, they were a small group. And I think that was also really clear, right? They didn't have a lot of support, but they were really, really passionate and dedicated to, to fighting on this issue. We're all sitting in a circle in white folding chairs and we're going one by one, Introducing ourselves. I want to apologize for the sketchy audio, but all of this is real. The animals, the noises that you hear, and the emotion is real too. This was too important to cut. Here's Youth Council leader Philip Ironshell. My name is Philip Ironshell. I work at the International Indigenous Youth Council, and I'm glad that we started doing this stuff at the boarding schools because we could all, all of us can trace things back to the boarding schools because it was just passed down to us. I lived a really hard life. So I grew up in the streets. I was just on the wrong path. And then when 2016 came, I went to Standing Rock. Philip is referencing the 2016 protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline that captured the world's attention and brought Native people's fight to protect our rights and land to the forefront. I was going to stay for two days at the weekend. And 
just get my brother and them out of jail and stuff. I remember the moment I stepped on the standing rock into the camp, I remember I wanted to stay. So I stayed and, and I was there for six months. After Standing Rock, when the camp shut down, I ended up traveling with a lot of my mentors for years. I did a lot of different work in different communities with different cultures and different actions, and I learned a lot from the things that they taught me. But you know, I always had this feeling of wanting to come home and do something. You know, it took a couple years to, to get this youth council off the ground. It was just a lot of hardships. But, you know, I think now that we have a lot of support, we have a lot of elders, we have a lot of great youth, um, and we've done a lot of great things. I think this is so much bigger than me, and it's going to help me heal and help my community heal. I don't want people to live like, like how I live. So I want to be a, an example. I want to be a better person. I'm gonna do what I have to do to, to be that person. Hearing Philip, it's just, it's, it's so emotional. It just really, really makes me choke up. And I think, you know, a couple things. Standing Rock cannot be underestimated about what an absolutely, like, transformative, like, moment that was for all Native people. But I think really, first and foremost, Standing Rock was born out of youth activism led by the Standing Rock youth, but then other youth that went up there. And I think it was just this like awakening about this larger, not only Native pride movement, but the, just the way that we need to stand up and build power and stand up to defend our ways of life and our communities. And I think it's this new generation of young Native activists and organizers leading the charge in that, you know, Philip, Eleanor, and so many other youth that I think are leading the charge on this, on the boarding school work. I think Eleanor really spoke from the heart. She was very impressive. You know, she actually had, I think, the most to say. And it was amazing because I think, if I'm remembering correctly, she really had a lot to say, then she kind of disappeared because I think she was nursing her child. So you're just like, wow, here she is, you know, this really dynamic youth leader, but she's also a mom of, of, of a little one. Um, and that was that was really something. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here with all of you that did put you back in a circle. I had to take a break for a bit because, you know, res life, it gets tough. Especially here on our res, you know, our people struggle day to day and we struggle trying to, you know, stay afloat, trying to meet. We felt the need to go to ceremony after or everything happened with the Jesuits. Uh, we weren't really on a good path with them. Eleanor and the rest of the IIYC presented a list of demands to the Jesuits, and they did it with force. They confronted them on the front lawns of the school and gave them a list which basically told the Catholic Church to get the hell out of here. Land back. Land back. Land back, a movement to return indigenous land back to indigenous peoples. Eleanor got into Sheena's face. We weren't there, so we can't speak to it, but it's clearly still in the air. You know, my family, they're still really against what I do. My mom doesn't like the Lakota way of life. She thinks it's it's demonic in a way because my grandpa taught her that. That's when it clicked for me. 
whenever I found out, you know, my grandfather was abused at Holy Rosary Mission and, you know, for trying to speak his language, for trying to practice his way of life, you know, he couldn't be Lakota. He had to be a white man. So I still don't have her support in what I do. I don't really have any of my family support besides my sisters. And that's really hard, you know, because they think what I'm doing is bad. And um, yeah, so that hurts in a way. Because after you become a mother, your whole mindset changes. You now, you know, you worry about, you know, the future generations. And with that comes a huge barrier. Like, you know, you have to really be careful about your actions because this isn't a world I want my son to grow up in. Yeah, I'll pass on the mind. My name is Shreka Ferguson. I'm Alan's sister. She said, let's go shut Red Cloud down, <laughs> you know? <laughs> She was very passionate and I I just came because this is my first time seeing what she's doing and I'm very proud of her. She was a mom and a sister, daughter, a granddaughter. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm a lost Lakota future. I'm not a lost Lakota. I am bound. You know, I'm like light complected. So if you look at me, you might just I'm, I'm not a Lakota, but I grew up under reservation. I'm just light complected. <laughs> so I had a long journey to tell myself that I am a Lakota. Sharifa has light skin and light hair, and she's explaining that this has given her an identity crisis, that she doesn't feel Lakota enough. We've heard this before, that lighter-skinned Lakotas have been favored, and they've been used to oppress their relatives, darker Lakotas. Before that, I was praying in these Catholic churches, talking to God, and feeling like I'm gonna go to hell because all the guilt that comes with talking to God. You know, I just didn't feel worthy enough. But in the Inipi, I was talking to my grandma, and I could always tell them that I need help whenever I needed help, and I didn't have to lie. I think listening to it, it's, it's really heartbreaking. I think a lot of people are really living in two worlds, and they're conflicted. And I think Sharifa is talking about how she was growing up and how these two worlds kind of collide, and they're not always in balance with one another. And it sounds like she's just had a hard time figuring out that and sort of discovering what path to take. I think a lot of people on the reservation are probably similarly conflicted. As I listened to Sharifa, I mean, I think I really identified with her because I'm light-skinned as well. And, you know, I think it's a constant thing that not only you face in your community, because I think there's oftentimes in the community, you know, how much blood quantum are you? How dark are you? You know, does that make you more legit, you know, native? But I think that's also the thing about the outside world too, is like, oh, you don't look native. You don't look native enough. And so I really resonate with that because I think growing up, I had the same struggle, right? And you just, sometimes you just don't feel like you belong anywhere. But when she talks about being in the Nipi, that means sweat. In Lakota, when she's in a Nipi, when she's in the sweat, she's feeling connected to her ancestors and her relatives. And so it's really cool to see her sitting in that circle because clearly she's going through an awakening. It's not just about fighting what's going on in Red Cloud. You're also finding people finding a way into their pathway of identity 
back into their culture, back into the circle, like literally the community. And so as much as it really tugs on your heart, and but at the same time, I find it really like inspiring. It's really beautiful. As we're sitting here watching introductions make their way around the circle, heading towards us, this is one of the times where I'm conflicted. Am I a reporter or am I an activist? Or am I somewhere in between? Normally, I just try to be a fly on the wall, and that's what I try to do here. But as for Crystal... My Pawnee name is Giharu Hatua, and I'm Kikahaki Bands from Pawnee Nation in Oklahoma. My English name is Crystal Echohawk, and um, I'm founder and executive director of Illuminative. Our work is founded on countering, like fighting against the erasure of our people. We really believe in the power of story. I mean, we're inspired. <laughs> when we heard about all the things that you're doing here. And um, so we're really just grateful that you've invited us here and you're trusting us to, to be in this circle with you. And we're doing a podcast on the boarding school investigation. It's deeply personal to me because, you know, my grandfather was a survivor and a lot of my relatives went through the Pawnee boarding school and it really impacted our family like so many of us. So. You know, I just want to say thank you because this is also filling something inside here and you're inspiring me. So, thank you. Um, my name is Lachey Wesley. Um, I'm Choctaw. I grew up in uh, Northern California um, and just am here to just listen to you all and thank you for having us. With introductions out of the way, the Youth Council let us listen in as they plan the action they're going to take during the ground penetrating radar event. With Red Cloud Indian School, formerly Holy Rosary, the federal government, the Catholic Church, generations and generations, zero transparency, zero accountability. So people now, of course, are going to be distrustful of everything, every step of the way. So the first demand, Holy Rosary Mission survivors and descendants of survivors demand the Jesuits of Red Cloud Indian School to begin the ground penetrating radar search throughout Red Cloud Indian School's entire campus as soon as possible with no excuses. Isn't Red Cloud only gonna do the cemetery right now? We need to tell Marshall Smalls, the GPR specialist, where to look tomorrow, because she'll be there and like, you know, to physically hear like our elders talk about like witnessing, you know, children being thrown into a grave, you know, a, a mass grave. You know, she needs to hear that type of stuff. You know, one thing, these priests, they're smart. They're not stupid. They're not going to bury anybody right on the campus. The cricks and everything. But, you know, I know Alex, he went to school there too. We always heard things that day. They buried, buried them, you know, by the old gymnasium. You know, just, you know, things like that, that we would hear, but we didn't, you know, rumors, you know, you better behave or they'll bury you, you know. <laughs> I have a couple of spots that are uh, suspect. When I used to teach school there, when you go into that school and that road that goes by the buildings, that was the original burial ground for a lot of deaths. But now they build a road highway over it. And then I, I used to take uh, children on nature walks. Behind there, there's a road. It's just about maybe from here to the road. There's a place where you could see dentations in the ground. And so I don't know if those are modern burials or I always get a uh, chill in my back when I used to take the kids through there. So I'm hoping that that radar can go through the paved road and, and check that out. The IIYC have their sights set on Red Cloud, but none of them even went to a Catholic school. Did any of you attend Red Cloud? I did. Okay, one of them did. 
But what's wild about that is that surrounded bear, who is Alex Whiteplume's grandson. His uncle is Brian Brewer, who was the one who shared this story. We were beaten regularly. A lot of the boys were burned. Yeah, this is also Brian Brewer. I did teach and coach at Red Cloud and Pine Ridge. Um, I was there for a couple of years teaching at Red Cloud, and, and it was, you know, it was okay. Red Cloud is one of the largest employers on the reservation. It's considered to be a good job there, too. We keep hearing from people who tried to fix the school from the inside, but everyone we spoke to eventually gave up. If the majority of the youth council didn't go to boarding schools, why do they have Red Cloud in their sights? You know, growing up, I, I knew my grandparents were in boarding schools and stuff, but as a kid, I didn't really think about stuff like that. Then it all hit me at once, like this is really fucked up. Like, you know, that this happened and I didn't even you know, pay attention to it. And like some of my grandparents and their brothers and sisters talked about how their traumas affected them, which ultimately affected our parents. And then that trauma, you know, our parents' trauma eventually affected us. It does make people uncomfortable. And I don't know if they know that that's what they're doing. I think they feel like they're doing a good thing. And that that's very maybe inspiring and hopeful for them. I don't know if they know that it hurts others, but I think hurt people hurt people. That's Macaw Black Elk, the face of the school's Truth and Healing Initiative. To say his relationship with the Youth Council is strained would be an understatement. On this very sensitive issue, they are the loudest opposing voices. A lot of it can be traced back to their activity on the internet. They've been incredibly dishonest, and you know they they published uh, on Facebook way back in October, September. Um, this like these like facts about Red Cloud, and that they they have like this statistic that from 1880 till 1970, 90% of students were sexually abused, and like that's not they never they made that number up. One of the Holy Rosary Mission staff, they were looking at her Facebook, and they found an article talking about how residential boarding schools were are basically concentration camps. They've been a source of of fear. Um, because I'm trying to do the actual work. I'm not on social media posing for pictures and, you know, making a social media campaign that riles up energy and fear. I'm trying to make our record, records accessible, get them out into people's hands, scan our grounds as best we can, you know, get to gather testimony from people, make sure that that is known, make sure that, you know, I'm doing, I'm, committed to this work and making it happen. I think the comparison is accurate. And many boarding school survivors have equated it to a concentration camp. We don't know. I mean, but the level of atrocities was massive, right? Whether it's 90% or not. I'll tell you what really all of a sudden in, in listening to McCaw, all of a sudden a lot, a lot of questions came to mind for me. Because on the one hand, he's saying, I'm trying to do a good thing. I'm trying to be super transparent. I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, but they're wrong. None of this is true. All of the bad things. And it's like, it can't be both. Either you're really committed and have to be open to it. It could be 90%. If you're truly willing to do this investigation and, and this whole initiative that you're doing, you can't be launching in and saying that these kids are wrong because nobody knows yet. Red Cloud Indian School has the highest burden of proof as the institution that put all of this in place. I mean, when you talk to people, people want to believe that they're, that Red Cloud is a bright spot 
on the Pine Ridge Reservation, that it is a good institution, that it's doing good things. Like we want, we want something good. And it's the biggest employer, one of the biggest employers. And to think about potentially that going away, you know, like that's part of it. You know, I think that actually the bigger burden ends up being on the young people and the people on the other side, because the deck feels so stacked between the Catholic Church, the United States government, right, community politics. I just think in some ways it's it's harder and they're young. So it's easy to dismiss young people like they don't know what they're talking about. They just got something off Facebook. So I, I don't know. I just think it's like maybe another way to look at it. Suddenly, things took a turn. This is probably off topic, but Marsha Small said that she went into the basement. They're going to be searching on Saturday. And she said that when she went in there, um, she went into this back room. She was fine, like, going down the hallway, but she went into this back room and she got goosebumps. Marsha Small is more than just a scientist. She considers this really to be a calling. She's the one who will survey parts of Red Cloud School and tell us if there is anything underground. And she said that she called upon her ancestors before she went down there. And she said usually when she does this type of work, she um, she does that so that they could notify her if they feel something in that room. So she said automatically she walked in there and her goosebumps were really, really like strong. And it, she said she couldn't be in there that long because the energy was really negative. And so, yeah, she told us about that and see, she said there's definitely something in there. So Saturday we'll find out. The same area was mentioned to us by Macaw Black Elk. You know, the person who gave that testimony said that when they were here, I think it was back in the 90s, that they saw in the basement what looked like two, um, I believe two, um, mounds of dirt that they felt looked like graves. And so that's all that they knew and felt that it was important to communicate that. There's pressure from members of the community to look here. According to reports, there is testimony from a former worker who witnessed three graves in the dirt underneath the old mission building, known as Drexel Hall. Since then, the dirt floor has been covered in concrete. And that's something we took very seriously, and that's why it's being scanned. Um, and so it's really important that um, that does get scanned, and whatever we can learn from that, that there's efforts after that to figure out what, you know, what that was, if anything. It might be nothing. What does the basement look like now? It's super old. Like it looks, it's clearly old, old basement, like from the 1800s, and that's when it was built, right? So it's just got years and years of um, eroded concrete and, but like new stuff in there, like HVAC systems and that are running all over the place. And so yeah, it's just a, it's a tight space. I picture it as dirt. Is it dirt? No, it's concrete. Members of the Youth Council participated in the Standing Rock movement, and this moment defined them and gave them a larger sense of purpose and a sense of destiny. It wasn't until I went to Standing Rock to fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline was when I realized that um, that was my way of life, protecting the land and defending the land. So we pulled up with all of our people, and uh, right then and there I seen the power we hold as a people as the Oglalas, and every day we marched up to the front line where the machinery was. And um, this one day, they brought out the Horse Nation, and we did a horse ceremony. And they usually say um, the Horse Nation brings the rain. 
and it was a clear sunny day and whenever we started marching it just started pouring down on us and you could see the clouds start forming into horses right before our eyes there's videos and photos all over facebook of that happening and that's whenever i knew like our way of life is powerful whenever i went to standing rock i was 13 years old and like I started crying. I busted out into tears because it was so beautiful. It was so powerful. Like my ancestors were there hugging me and like welcoming me back to our way of life. For them, the stakes are very high. This is about their children. This is about their grandchildren. This is about the entire community that's living with this trauma and having to live with this school, drive by the school, have their children go to the school every single day. As a longtime activist who sat in many circles like that before, it was cool to see not only like it wasn't just the youth, but they were really sitting there with like very seasoned elders who have a really like epic legacy of activism themselves. So one, it was just super cool to kind of see the baton sort of getting handed off and to see the way the elders were supporting them. When we got to watch the, the video of their fall protest. It was exciting to see how they were going to plan this and to see them plotting for what they were gonna do, knowing that there was gonna be TV cameras there. And there's a lot of Oglalas out here are pissed off about the church and I know damn well we'll get them removed if it goes that route. It's gonna be pretty, pretty crazy. I was expecting to see a lot of what we saw last year with their protest, which was them on horses, with a microphone, with a big crowd, drones, a huge list of demands. I was interested in seeing what they were gonna do. It was intense, right? On horseback, they were right up there, the Jesuits. Like, it's always just fun to watch young people throw down for something they believe in and they're passionate about. But also, I just got the sense too that there were some challenges. I mean, I think I even remember Eleanor pulling me aside, just saying that it kind of been hard times recently too. And I really got the sense that there was beyond just like what the issue was, that there's just like really external challenges facing them as young people and their families. So I remember thinking like, I wasn't sure how much it was gonna come off. They weren't sure how many people were gonna show up. So I think it was like, I don't know, I guess we're gonna see what happens, right? Just not totally being clear. I think you get the sense of these kind of activists at the protests that they had last year. But in that circle, they had a printed out agenda. They are very organized. They had a printed agenda, snacks, background music. Chairs. Chairs. It was pretty cool. On the next episode of American Genocide, the investigators' deep dive into the resistance movement brings them to an organization with big plans for rebuilding the reservation into a self-sustaining powerhouse without a Catholic church presence. It was like this field of dreams that managed to like raise $60 million. They also sit down with daughters of the Indian resistance movement who now sit on opposite sides of Red Cloud. I love my teachers. I love my kids are happy with where they are. They make a lot of money off of um, selling our children. It all leads to a passionate sit-down with three generations of former Red Cloud students who reflect on their time and why they are still so angry. The producer of this podcast would like to thank and acknowledge the following. 
Evolutionaries, supported by CAA and Pop Culture Collaborative, San Manuel Band of Mission Indians, Serdna Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Novo Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, Christensen Fund, Pivotal Ventures, and JPB Foundation.